Welcome to the founders of Web3 Series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. So today we've got Fabian Fogelsteller, founder and chief architect at Luxo, kind of co-inventor of the ERC-20 standard, um, and now at Luxo, the reversible ICO or RICO, uh, still kind of determining what the world's going to call it when it's out in the wild. So you're a developer and pioneer in the blockchain space and have been very central to the Ethereum community and its success. Uh, you've led many of the user and developer-facing projects there. Together with Vitalik, you proposed the ERC-20 token standard, which initiated the, the whole ICO wave. And I know that isn't necessarily something you regard as your crowning achievement. There's many other things that you've done there, which we'll hopefully get into. And today you're leading this concept design and development of the Luxo blockchain. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you. So the reason why I wanted to get you on the show firstly is, you know, you've been behind several firsts in the ecosystem. And I would argue some of the innovations which have been foundational to the space, its progress, but most importantly, adoption of Web3. You built a lot of developer tooling and introduced a lot of standards that actually got used, which is incredibly rare for this space. Uh, and so I really want to understand the, the process or the secret source for its relative success. I say relative because I think we can all agree as an industry, we're still a long way away from mainstream adoption, perhaps the thing that we we all want to see. And with the ERC-20, you've created standards which respectively have led to whole cycles from the ICO to things that evolved out of that uh, with NFTs, um, non-fungible tokens, and which likely we still haven't fully seen the impact of yet. Whilst they've been around for a while now, I, I think these things are, are still going to be instrumental into uh, new worlds that we've not yet seen. And in the same way, we've had Brendan Eich on the show discussing about how he feels about the success of JavaScript and its impact on the web. And so it'd be great to understand how, how you feel about the impact of ERC-20. Um, in some of the, the pre-chat, you said you kind of developed that within an hour, which is very close to, to Brendan's five days for JavaScript. And presumably in the same way that Brave is a response to, um, to JavaScript, you could say the, the RICO or the RICO is a response to what's happened with um, the ERC-20. So uh, maybe to kind of summarize your, your origins, again, you know, correct me if I, uh, if, I, if I miss anything or get it wrong, but you studied a Bachelor, of, bachelor and a Master's of Fine Arts at Bauhaus University in uh, Weimar. You freelanced as a web developer and designer for several years and joined Ethereum in 2015, where you worked until 2018. You worked on things like Mist Browser, Ethereum Wallet, Web3.js contributions. And to kind of maybe contextualize the, the impact of those things, um, so the Ethereum wallet allowed you to store many different tokens in one account. That's about to pass 100 million wallets, I believe, imminently. I don't know if you're aware of that stat. 
multiple, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, it looks like it's going to pass it I- imminently. Maybe by the time this goes out, that, that's already happened. With Web3.js, uh, that allows, it's kind of a, a theory in, via the browser, and uh, without it, we wouldn't have uh, the kind of DAP UIs uh, that we see now. So over 50,000 projects are interacting it, using it in, in some way. And that is, again, for context, double Facebook's machine learning library. Um, so again, I don't know if you were aware of that either, but um, a, another cool, a cool stat. And then with uh, the ERC-20, you know, I guess the one thing that most people are most acutely aware of uh, created this boom in ICOs. Over 250,000 have been deployed, um, four of which have a market cap over a billion dollars. And then Mist Browser, it was the first kind of browser wallet. And I believe that's got about 7,000 stars on GitHub in 2004. So again, very quantifiable in terms of kind of traction and adoption. So if we kind of start from the beginning, how how did you get involved in Ethereum? Uh, What was the kind of genesis story there? So basically, I really, uh, I mean, I was following Bitcoin since 2013. I, I kind of came in really before this first public bubble uh, in March 2013, where Bitcoin went from $10 to $260. So, and I went right in and heard about Canadian wants to sell a house in Bitcoin. I thought like, wow, that must be something. Somebody sells a house and something I've never heard of. Uh, and that was kind of my, my in and since then, I was completely like, that was my hobby. I was interested in, in following everything. It was interesting enough one or two months before the first altcoin so i kind of like got the whole altcoin history to experience live and it was really interesting to see how this all evolved initially and um i kind of got interested also in mastercoin as a concept because the idea was okay we don't build another blockchain we build something on top of bitcoin and it was a great idea even though mastercoin on the end failed um, because they invented a token uh, that made no sense which is a really interesting analogy if we think about it. <laughs> but it's it's kind of like it showed that they can do a lot more than just uh, money or like, you know, simple Bitcoin transfers. Uh, and Vitaly came up with this idea, which also basically came out of MasterCoin, is to extend Bitcoin and make it programmable. Uh, and then he thought, okay, let's make a new chain, uh, which was the Ethereum chain. So I followed all of this. This was kind of my hobby, but I was a web developer. Uh, I wrote a book in Meteor.js and I could do full stack uh, development. So when Ethereum kind of like started, uh, I was in the point in time doing some freelance jobs and really was looking. And I would have loved to work in the crypto space at the time. But most of the, the projects that I saw around, they either had no money or was all like Bitcoin wallet focused. It was not really super interesting to me. But I got to know the guys at Ethereum here in, one day before they started their pre-sale because they wanted to open up an office in Berlin. I met them before they started the pre-sale. Suddenly, like a week later, they had a lot of money and there were a bunch of disorganized people who wanted to build cool <laughs> things. So <laughs> a few months later, I actually got in contact with them again. And lucky enough, Alex von der Sande, the UX designer of Ethereum, had this brilliant idea of the Mist browser, of the first like decentralized browser that fulfills all of these ideas of you know, the decentralized web and this vision of Ethereum. But he was not able to build it all by himself, and that's why he was looking. So it was a great fit because I could do web applications uh, in full stack uh, with my knowledge in Meteor. So I reached out there. This all went into the internal Skype, and then on the end, uh, they reached out to me. And I joined the Ethereum Foundation in January 2015. This was six months before we started the network. 
I built a chat application based on the Whisper protocol, basically in my first month that is still not really utilized and still sitting there on the Ethereum repository, I hope <laughs> it could actually work. It was the first one. And we had some great fun in the office um, because we all used it. Uh, and Whisper was a complete, you know, protocol from scratch. So this kind of like impressed everybody. And then and we went along and built the Mist browser, Alex and I. And um, the Mist browser, interesting enough, over the, the course of the years had over 15 million downloads or something around that number. And that didn't have even a website. So you had to go to GitHub, release, download your release. <laughs> so it definitely had some traction because this was also the only tool that allowed you to interact with the DAO, interact with early dApps or smart contracts in general, because they want to really dApps. By building the Mist browser, we also had the define of how you interact with dApps and how this all works. So that kind of like really led me to be involved in a lot of the groundwork when it comes to developer experience on Ethereum. Because I kind of had to build, you know, uh, Web3.js, I improved it over time later when I overtook it fully. But also, how does a DApp call uh, talks to an Ethereum node? How does this in the middle look like? Um, the RPC API, which is kind of like the, the front end of the node, was quite messy. So I cleaned that up or helped cleaning this up and make it more consistent as well. So I had to do this kind of groundwork to get anything running while also learning at the same time how this stuff works. because. There was no documentation, nothing, you know, you had to figure out things as you go, like ask Christian, hey, you know, how does this work in Solidity? What does this do here? And puzzle it all together. But yeah, over the course of the, the years in Ethereum, I, I built then the, the Ethereum wallet, Miss Browser, things you mentioned. I worked on Web3.js that has 150,000 downloads. And you, you mentioned that number of 50,000 applications. Um, didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, obviously, the, it's currently the most used JavaScript library in this space. And I think the, the story to the success of this is my interest always was to make things easy to use. And if you make an interface, you know, that's easy to use, or if you make a developer library, it's on the end the same. Your developer is your user of your, of your library. Uh, a user of an interface is the user of your whatever application you build. And then both have to look like be intuitive. I think on the end, I think as, as an open source person, you always build all things for yourself only. And then in the second thought, you think, oh yeah, other people could use it too. <laughs> but if you don't build for yourself, then you don't really build good things, I think. I want to have easy to use libraries. If I want to build an, a DApp, I want it to be intuitive. I don't want to look into the documentation all the time because the thing is unclear. I just want, to, want it to be intuitive. So I build it that way. Um, and I do think a few uh, a lot of other people see it similar and appreciate it as well. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. So I was going to ask you how how did you iterate and you know decide roadmap? Was it coordinated, or as you say, was it very bottom up? You know, you identified problems, challenges that you had to fix for yourself, and that then informed how you would iterate. You know, how were new ideas proposed and decided upon? How, how was that roadmap driven? I mean, this is one of the reasons why I really love working at Ethereum and, and Ethereum in general, the whole community. It's a very uh, bottom-up, do-it-yourself, you know, determine what it should be or what it will be uh, attitude. You know, like nobody, I mean, there was no hierarchical structure where somebody said, hey, you know, this is what you do. It's basically, this is the stuff and let's make it work. <laughs> Come up with something that makes sense. And... Um, and it was really, on the end, uh, you could be a person that just builds for himself a little bit, doesn't really care about the broader picture, 
or you're a more engaged uh, developer and you really want to make a difference. And I think it was more the latter. I kind of involved myself in all the different angles and really want to make sure that the overall user experience and developer experience is good because that's on the end what brings the adoption. Uh, most other developers who come to something like Ethereum or so, they are, they're not there to like fix Ethereum or reinvent like the basics. They want to just have something that works and kind of plug and play it into what they want to build. And I think, I mean, at the time, Ethereum was probably, even though it was that complex and that new, it had the greatest user experience and our developer experience at the time. I mean, coming from Bitcoin, it, that was horrible, complicated. You had like this one RPC API and that's all you got. <laughs> there was no libraries really or anything else. And Ethereum was a lot more flexible. It was more appealing to JavaScript developers, actually. So Web3.js is really like you are interacting with a smart contract like if it is a uh, JavaScript object. And that was completely different and completely new. So I think this, this, led, this was one of the reasons really why it took so off. And it was really like in community driven, it was between us developers deciding things on the go, what we see people needed, what we wanted to have. So earlier in the intro, um, we uh, discussed the ERC-20 standard and that you proposed it, it took you about an hour of, of consideration. Uh, so you know, how, like looking back and thinking about the, the impact of that, firstly, what was it that drove the recommendation? And, you know, as you now kind of re- reflect on that innovation, how do you feel about it and its impact on the space? Um, I mean, just to tell quickly the story, how it came to be. So basically, Vitalik created this little draft about, uh, you know, a token API in the, the wiki in Ethereum. And we had a few discussions and I changed a few things up because I wanted to be more aligned of how things in, in Solidity work right now as well. Uh, anyway, in terms of the order of parameters. And I kind of thought, okay, that's the wrong place. So if we now really want to make this a standard and discuss about this, I mean, just this wiki page is not really going anywhere. Um, at the time, Martin BC he created the EIP repository. So that was his kind of innovation. It's like, say, okay, here we have a process where we can talk about Ethereum improvement proposals. And the idea was really more consensus proposals, like anything low-tech. But I thought, okay, that's a great, that's actually a perfect place to talk about a standard, you know? Let's create an issue where we can discuss this token standard in a more proper format. And I called it ERC, Ethereum Request for Comment, because the idea was, okay, we just get some comments in and then we decide what to do. Um, I also, and this is probably the same thing, like when, we, when I build open source or build interfaces, I want it to be easy to use. So in order for people to understand what it is, you know, to write a specification that is simple. I mean, a lot of standards we have today, they're way too complex. They're like these monsters of like a text block. People don't read, you know, that's the number one thing you have to match when you write something, you know, they will not read your text anyway. So trim it down, make it as simple to digest as possible. And I kind of created this ERC, you know, whatever standards format, not thinking that it would become a standard, not thinking that it would be the first standard. And, you know, people discussed about it and it was, this, it was probably at the right thing at the right time because there was this need for defining what a token Ethereum can look like. And so we had a discussion with around 60 people um, and at some point it kind of like got adopted. People started doing it this way. And interesting enough, it kind of like led to this adoption and I mean, then this whole ICO thing started 
And for me, kind of ICOs became weird in May 2017. That's when I thought like, guys, okay, you know, now the, the weird people come in. Forget <laughs> <laughs> about these ICOs right now. So I started focusing somewhere else because I, it was just way too distracting with these crazy numbers up and down and so on. I mean, it's interesting. Like I had this uh, friend of mine who told me, hey, you made years 20 and I made all of these billions of dollars of like ICOs. And that was the first time. And this was some, sometime in 2017. When for the first time I may kind of click like, oh yeah, actually I did something that has now an historical impact. But I was not really mentally connecting these two things. You know, that's then a proposal and that effect. And the whole like Bitcoin bubble, Ethereum bubble, they kind of all came out of that. Um, and it really just clicked for me like after the fact. Does that change how you innovate now? Are you more considered about the things you put out or does, does that not, not make any difference? I, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but if I r- realized I have that level of impact or could have that level of impact, I would probably be a bit more a- anxious, to be honest with you, ab- about any you know, future contributions. Yeah. So, I mean, I think like probably also like Eric, you know, from JavaScript, I mean, when you do these things that have this big impact, it's not that you think about all the potential consequences. You just think of like, okay, that's something which needs to be done right now. And you do it to the best of your abilities and what you think is right. With ESC 75, which didn't, didn't have, have this much impact yet, even though there's an alliance and there's a lot of projects which want to use it, I, I had a very similar feeling. I felt like if I'm not proposing that right now, then like nobody will. And it kind of felt like, I had this urge that I need to do this now. I need to put this out now. And I did create a lot of buzz, you know. I was this kind of like <laughs> little fight with like viewport and all of these things going on around the standard. And for clarity, that enables you to have an on-chain persona. Yeah, on-chain profile, on-chain account, on-chain identity. So the moment you use the word identity, you get really into this whole self-sovereign identity field, which obviously needs more privacy. If you put something on the blockchain, that's not very private. So it's... It's more like your on-chain account, you know, it could be an anonymous account, could be a public account, uh, but obviously if you put anything on the blockchain, it's most likely more public than anonymous. <laughs> yes. But it is still a very important standard and that's a standard we are going to heavily depend on in Luxor as well, because I think it's, it's the next way to go is uh, going away from keys, going to smartphone based accounts, because these allow us to upgrade security, to move or upgrade our the way of how we hold assets without that we have to you know be super worried about oh i opened this app and i forgot to write down the key and oh my god all my 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 stuff is gone that's exactly one of the reasons why web3 is so hard to adopt is because it's so technical it's kind of like you want to show somebody hey i have this great new car and wait look in the engine you know isn't it an amazing engine do you see all the valves here amazing right and the guy wants to sit in the car, but you like show him the engine for like two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how we're three is today. So actually it's a nice segue into, into Luxo. So that's described as the blockchain for uh, new creative economies. I guess this is going back to your origins in the creative field that you uh, initially studied in. And actually it brings together a number of these innovations, as you say, both in terms of the persona, but then also, I guess, NFTs that have evolved out of the ERC-20 standard. As I understand it, this is your first official startup as a, as a founder. I mean, I guess, you know, you, you could argue you were a, kind of a, a co-founder in a way of Ethereum or many of the things that come out of it, but this is your first startup. So firstly, it'd be good to understand, you know, your, your description of it and how that brings together a number of the different domains that you've been working in. But then I also think it's interesting, you know, why, why this and why now? You know, why create a startup now and uh, why this? 
So the idea of Luxo is basically to create a blockchain dedicated to this new digital lifestyle that I see and we see coming in the next few years. And it's also actually, in my opinion, the way of how blockchain can go mainstream. If you, make block, if you actually use blockchain in applications that ordinary people are interested in, that's exactly when you get the real traction. Because the problem is right now uh, in blockchain, especially when you look at all this tokenization, I mean, for me, for example, it's interesting to see everything's about tokens now. I mean, back in the day when we made, uh, talked about ERC20 and like even before, I mean, there's so much more you can do in smart contracts. The potential of the Ethereum protocol is enormous. And right now, the whole focus is around tokens, which is just such a tiny niche. It's already in itself a very big potential what lies here. You can do tokens about all kinds of things. And it can be, it's kind of like a building block. But at the same time, it's like basically 0.1% of what can be done on a smart contract blockchain. And right now, the narrative is very much interesting enough, even though Ethereum always wants to be more like different type of use cases, not financial use cases. Bitcoin is finance and Ethereum is something else. It's now like all finance. You know, DeFi is great, but the problem with DeFi is, I mean, I love that DeFi exists and I find it super innovative and super interesting to watch. But it's not like interesting for the ordinary person because the ordinary person is not thinking about how to like, you know, put options on his wealth or whatever, or make it go up and down or lend himself things and speed loans or whatever. That person thinks more, okay, what uh, can I do which has impact in my community, my social circle? What helps me to, to be a good content creator or even make money as a content creator or the things I want to create? They don't think about like DeFi protocols all day long. And it's also extremely male-dominated, which is the blockchain space in general, heavily male-dominated. So that excludes basically 51% of the whole population on this planet. And I do think if we want to go to mainstream, we first have to be more op open to the female audiences, number one. And second, we have to be more open to ordinary people that are not technical first, which don't want to be like heavy nerds, you know, understanding private keys. It's so people who just want to download an app, you click, 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 and do something cool with it. And if that uses blockchain, even the better. Because then we get all the decentralization benefits, we get all of this independence and this, the new Web3 future we all envision. So the idea with Luxo is kind of to move these blockchain applications and debate to a different direction. And probably the number one question everybody has, why not doing this on Ethereum? Why not a blockchain? And this is actually something I was thinking um, really strongly about in the beginning. I mean, there's one, obviously, there's a clear problem of scalability, which is basically us... Um, we have a limited amount of resources. And even though we are thinking about new ways of doing that, with sharding, with 2.0 and so on, there's a limit of what that can be in the first place as well. But what I really learned being in this space since 2013 is that everything is about community. Every blockchain, even though they claim to be the super blockchain for the whole world, on the end is about a very specific community with a very specific interest. I mean, Alex wrote on the website of Ethereum, build unstoppable applications. By writing that statement there, and he really just made it up, he defined the community of Ethereum. He defined what kind of people are attracted to Ethereum and what they are building on Ethereum. So by defining a blockchain for the new digital lifestyle, we actually define that community and that set of use cases. And we have really like put a lot of thought in it. And we have wrote this um, white paper, which is almost like a Bible. Um, because funny enough, everybody who's now working in that field or go, doing similar things in our direction, like if you look at Flow or the With Foundation, they're just copy and pasting our white paper. Like basically, 
one to one, same words, same same content, and we put it out there like a year ago. Um, so it's interesting that we kind of define that community and that set of use cases, which currently is very small. And if you look at the early examples uh, of those kind of use cases on Ethereum, we had YouTube Music, um, a platform where you can like sell songs and distribute the earnings to all the people who participated in the song and things like this. They were outliers at the time. They didn't really got the traction because the community and, and the interest group was not really there. It's kind of like a kind of outlier uh, groups. While all the developers are about the decentralization and finance and tokens, everything now and protocols. So in order to make this successful, we need a separate network. We need those people who come new into this space. They have a place where they feel that's their place, where they feel I can be in there from the beginning. I can grow with this ecosystem. I don't come last and the, the party's over and it's like a small piece of cake on the plate still. <laughs> you want to feel like there's still a cake and the party just started. And I think this is the main reasons why a separate network makes sense. At the same time, I don't see Luxo as like a competition to Ethereum. I mean, I am from the Ethereum community. I've helped build that community and we are building on top of the Ethereum protocol. Our network is using the Ethereum virtual machine like many other blockchains do as well. It's built on the same tools. And the tool that I have built work for Luxo as well. It's built on the same knowledge basis because it is the JavaScript of the blockchain space, but it is its own community, its own network. And what differs is the consensus algorithm. Therefore, there's a different speed and there's a different kind of scalability. And we can experiment more in a different direction in terms of consensus, which is not really bothering much the developer itself because the developer only cares about what smart contracts he can deploy and how he interacts with those smart contracts. He doesn't care how that machine is run necessarily. You know, as long as this doesn't affect your smart contract in a strong way, it doesn't matter what kind of consensus runs. And that's the bigger vision of, of, of Luxor, is making this new digital lifestyle, how we coin it. And what I have been always good at is kind of like sensing a little bit the future in the next two years. So I have, you know, uh, if you look at ESC20, I mean, that was in 2015, November 2015. All of the other things I have done, they had an impact like one or two years later, and then they had a very big impact. And I think we are onto something really big here as well, because people will soon very much realize that the next wave of blockchain applications and the next wave of users are coming from that angle. There will be the lifestyle people. There will be the creative people. So could you explain more specifically what you mean by kind of digital lifestyle and, and creative economies? What, what would be possible on Luxo that isn't currently possible on, on other chains, other ledgers? Technically, everything is possible in current chains. I mean, Ethereum is an EVM blockchain, so you could build anything already, right? So does every other blockchain which has a true complete machine. But the difference is that we are specifically focusing on that kind of uh, use cases. That means we will attract the right people and we will provide the basic tools, and that is in, in core three, that really help this uh, economy to evolve. So on the one hand, we do need universal profiles. And universal profiles... Uh, I mean, you're actually your public profiles. One of the things which makes the internet great is that we have a lot of public profiles. We have Twitter, we have Facebook, we have all of these things that collect reputation. I mean, most of the internet content creators are living out of those public profiles. If you make them independent on a, on a network, on a blockchain, then you allow for a whole different way of engagement and also for a whole different way of censorship resistance that we have today. Um, so universal profile is one. 
They are also important, important because they make Web3 easy to use. Because now we can have a smart contract-based account where the key can be replaced, a throwaway key. You can start with something that is super insecure and you improve your security as your assets grow, as your reputation grows, as things get more important for you. You don't have to sit there and write down 12 words and then you forgot where you put them and then you deleted your phone and you lost all your stuff, right? <laughs> Typical Web3 new user experience. Um, so smart contract-based accounts is one, one thing. The other thing is digital certificates, how we call it, and which is basically just, I would call it NFT 2.0. So right now, and it's really interesting too, and it's also funny to see, is most of the standards we use today are really just a derivative out of ERC-20 with like small changes and a long debate and maybe a bit more changes later on. If you look at ERC-7.1, so NFT standard, that's really... In its essence, it was ERC-20 where you don't transfer a number, but you transfer a hash or an ID. That's all the change it was. It's now a bit more complex, but it's still very simple. With 7 to 5, which is actually useful for the universal profiles, you can also create digital certificates that are more sophisticated. Because now you can create an NFT that has all kinds of information you can attach it. You could attach authenticity information. You could attach a reputation system. You could attach its own token to an item or to a set of items. So making these digital certificates or these NFTs more sophisticated allows other systems to integrate them better and to interact with those in a more complex way than it's today. So right now, an NFT in simple terms is user A owns ID DX, and here is a JSON file where you can read the title and an image. <laughs> so that's all it is right now. Uh, and then everybody, you're like, puts a bit of interface sugar on top and says, hey, wow, we figured new stuff out. But nobody really evolves on the core. And these core standards are so important because this is what allows this economy to grow or to become very flexible, or it's just like, it has a limit on what it can be. So that's why we redefine that, which also makes it easier in a new blockchain because we can define those standards and the people who will build on luck so are, are more willing to accept those standards first because they are kind of building blocks you can just use. And the third important piece is what we call cultural currencies or currencies of culture. And this is actually the tokenization that, that I think will have a bigger impact than the current tokenization we have. So currently, if you talk about tokens, the, the second thought is, oh, what's the value? So it must be some kind of monetary value. You need to be able to trade it. It has to be worth dollars or ether <laughs> or Bitcoin. And everybody tries to translate tokens into an actual monetary value. When the actual really interesting uh, forms of tokenization are more about reputation. Because what is really money in the essence? It's nothing else than a represent representation of interest and reputation. So we can go right to the goal and make it reputation at first. And that's also more interesting to basically everybody else on the internet. So the internet already works that way, right? We have likes, we have stars, we have followers. Problem with that is these things are owned by platforms, number one. They are really hard sometimes to quantify. So you can have 6,000 followers. But if you follow 6,000 people, uh, then you might have 6,000 followers which are completely useless. Or you might have uh, 6,000 people with less importance. Or you have 3,000 people with a lot of importance. 
Or they could all just be fake, right? I mean, you can just acquire fake users for, to, 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 with a false signaling effect. You could build, using tokenization, you could build uh, reputation systems that make it very quantifiable how reputable a certain person is. And that is for content creators. It's uh, for a digital fashion designer, a physical fashion designer, a YouTuber, an influencer. This is extremely essential to stand out. Also for users to know who is authentic, who's really reputable, and who's just trying to. Right. So currencies of culture is basically all forms of tokenization and new ways of tokens that are more around reputation, that are more about uh, your followers. And that is, I think we will see a complete new economy where, for example, an influencer that makes a lot of money due to the reach he has might be able to share parts of that with his top 10 followers. Because why not? He makes a lot of money. There are his top 10 followers, which have like basically liked everything since five years of him. Why not share something? Or we will find completely new ways of how content is created, how wealth is distributed, how we participate in an economy. Because the problem of the internet today is that the internet's business model is purely advertisement. So basically, what, what the internet sells is the eyeballs of people. And that's why you need a website with a bunch of ads, you know, and if you have a lot of users and a lot of people watch these ads, and suddenly you make money. But there's no real other business model around the internet whatsoever. It's really about that. And we can change that using these tokenizations because this tokenization, now they could become something that represents money, but maybe in the future, having a stake in something or being able to show that you're part of something is more important than having a monetary value because that token of reputation might give you access, might give you benefits, may, might give you uh, participation in something that you otherwise couldn't have. And that's, that's when we talk about cultures of currency and currency of cultures as, as a new form of tokenization that are a bit far away from DeFi. Interesting. And so one of the other things that's really interesting about this project is the approach or mechanism that you're pioneering, piloting the reversible ICO, RICO, RICO, which you've done in collaboration with regulators, in particular BaFin, which is the, the, the German regulator. So it'd be great if you could unpack what is RICO and uh, you know, why you think that's important generally and specifically to, to um, Luxo. So the idea with the reversible, I mean, the idea is we are making a blockchain. A blockchain has a token. So compared to other like ERC20-based fundraising mechanisms of the last year, the one I know definitely has value and it's very important and makes sense is a blockchain-based token. And an ICO is also important because you do need to distribute stake in the network. So the reverse of so we had the idea of we make this network, you know, and we create this new ecosystem, we need to make an ICO. But because of the, the, the way of how ICOs are seen and also because of the reactions of the regulators, I just didn't want to make any ICO um, because I thought that's kind of like weird. <laughs> I mean, I kicked it off and now I do my ICOs myself, same way, FOMO in and all of these things. So I, I thought a bit about new ways of doing it. Uh, Vitalik had a good idea about the DAO ICO. And I kind of like uh, leaned a bit on this idea, but simplified it. Because the problem with these kind of new mechanisms is that, you know, the more complex it is, the less people want to participate and the less people even know how to participate. If you make people vote, like in the DAO ICO, then you have other problems. Yeah. You don't get the quorum together or people are not online when they need to be online or some kind of like 
uh, auditing company which shows the progress is corrupt or all of these things. So I thought about a more simple way of how to solve these, this ICO problem uh, and make it more fair. And the idea behind this was also because we have seen in the last two years a lot of regulators move into the space and think, oh, we now need to regulate everything and fix it and uh, restrict it and so on. Look at the USA. You know? The US is kind of the most restrictive country when it comes to, to cryptocurrencies, which is like such a paradox for being the capitalist of the world. <laughs> they, they don't allow their users to do what they want, but they're the lenders to free. So these things really don't go well together, in my opinion. But <laughs> the socialist Europe supposedly is then obviously a lot more free in that sense. But um, the point here is that if we can show that we can do things safe by design, and we as a space can self-regulate using techniques like the reverse of ICO, then regulators have less of a need to go in and, and kind of like draconian stop things. And also my belief is that regulation on paper only goes on so far. I mean, if I now make a security, you know, and I have to come with a prospectus that is like 20 pages long, small print, which nobody reads. And I guess I have the chance that if something goes wrong, I can make a lawsuit. And after 10 years, I see nothing of my money. Like, where is the security here? <laughs> I, I'm not sure what is the benefit of that. So could you explain functionally what's, what's different about the reversible ICO compared to, you know, the ICOs that we, we know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in simple terms, it's really an ICO in a normal form is you send tokens to a smart contract, and, uh, so you, it's an ether to a smart contract, and you get tokens back. That lead, led to this rush-ins, it led to FOMO, it led to lock-ins. Um, the reversible ICO simply works the way that you basically commit a certain amount of ether in the smart contract. It's 100% in your control, and you now, over a certain period of time, in our case, it's eight months, you buy the tokens up. And because you buy them over time and you know exactly eight months buys me my 100 looks from zero to 100, then you know exactly how much Ether you can still get out at which point in time. And because the Ether are basically not even, they haven't bought yet, they're basically just in, in some sort of account of yours in the smart contract. And you kind of like have a, a automatic withdrawal or automatic buy that's happening over time. So by doing that, we basically allow people to rethink their choices for eight months. So they have more, they can be more calm about their choice. It's a very secure investment this way because you don't really feel you're rushed in. At the same time, you have locked in the price at which you went in. So you have the security that what you reserved, you will get at exactly that price. And that gives you a lot more trust and you can actually observe the project along the way. And I think what's really important is that here, the choice is with every person themselves. So you don't need to vote with your peer investors. You don't need to you know, wait for some event to happen. You can just decide tomorrow, hey, guys, I don't believe in it anymore. Send my locked looks back to the contract, get my user back. And that's in very, it's kind of like investing. I was going to say kind of uh, analogous with an option, really, right? You have an option to call at a future date, at a fixed price. Um, and so that gives but you- automatic buying. And it's, it's, I mean, for all legal reasons and also from like how it's technically working, it's kind of you buy over time. It's like you have a specific account that has this kind of like debbing. I'm not sure we have a German word for that called last shift where it's deducting from your account automatically. So it works more like that way. 
um, could be also seen as some sort of an option, but it's automatic in this way. Yeah. Understood. It gives you more, more choice and more calmness, which also in the other effect removes the formal, which can also be problematic <laughs> because now people don't feel they have to go in right now. So it goes both ways. The more traction there's on the project, obviously the more they fill up. And um, because in our case, the reversible ICO is the only public supply. If the market on, on exchanges, for example, is bought up, that's the only way where you can go in. It is the, this is where the supply comes from. It doesn't come anywhere else from. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's super interesting and I'm definitely going to be watching to see how it evolves. And I think it's great testament to, I think, your approach to the space, you know, like being considered about how, how you innovate. I'm really happy that it's happening here in Europe as well. I think um, not many people fully appreciate just how pro-innovation Europe is specific to crypto and in, in the context of crowdfunding. And it's been a fascinating interview. Uh, you've been a great guest and I'm you're very grateful for all the uh, hard work that you've been putting into the space and progressing it. And I think, again, Luxo, putting aside uh, the RICO, the, the, the fact that it's North Star is really about how we can create a gateway to bring on not just more users, but users of greater diversity. I think that's going to be really important to the space um, and how it evolves. So um, Fabian, thank you very much for coming on the show. And I'm sure we'll get you on again to hopefully discuss the success of the reverse ICO and, and Luxo. Thank you. And thank you for bringing me on. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 